Hello there. I'm Brett McGarry. He is Greg Mackling. Greg. Buongiorno. Oh, Throw that's a new one. Yeah, a little Italian. Feeling <laughs> sassy. Had Italian food for supper last night, so... <laughs> That's as far as I get, though, buddy. Arrivederci. Oh, well, that's there. That's two. Yeah. Okay. That's more than I'm I doing know. better than I thought. <laughs> so today we are going to have our usual visit with Carolyn Clausen at 2.30. She is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. We're going to pick up a conversation that we started last week about getting scammed, online dating scams in particular. That was what we were supposed to talk about last week, but we only got halfway in to our subject of scamming because we decided to talk to her about her son's volleyball team. <laughs> who, happened well, to- who happened to win the national championship in uh, university volleyball right here in Winnipeg. So it was uh, something to be celebrated for sure. Yeah, so we got a little distracted and uh, had a chat about sports and sort of sports psychology kind of stuff. So we will carry on with that chat. And don't forget we have more Age of Electric tickets to give away. We'll do that after 3 o'clock sometime. And, of course, wait for your chance to qualify for the CJOB flyaway to U2. We will do that around 2.10-ish. So it's probably closer to 2.15. We might be closer to 2.10 today because we do have Keith McCullough coming in studio at 2 o'clock. And it won't be quite as awkward as having the mayor of Little Mogadishu on the phone uh, when we do something like that today. So, uh, yeah, just if you're entered, keep your ears peeled around 210 this afternoon. If you'd like to go see you too, and I mean, who in the heck wouldn't? So, in the meantime, we're going to... Are we going to Jill's house? Is Let's that go to doing? Jill's house. The 12-foot. Let's go right to the... Let's go right to the button of Jill's house. Hi, Jill officer. Hi, guys. How are you? Doing well. How are you? Good, thanks. Have you recuperated from your traumatic experience in the hotel you wrote about on Global News website? That the, you know, people are so inconsiderate. Yeah, you know, writing the the blog about that was, uh, you know, it was a little bit therapeutic, I think, for me. But you know, it's it's just something that occurred to me, you know, a day or two later, actually, that you know what, this is maybe. I've written blogs and stories about airplane and airport etiquette, and uh, I thought, oh, why not hotel etiquette as well? Well, we're going to talk about the airplane and uh, airport etiquette a little bit later on this hour and get feedback from our listeners, but maybe you could paraphrase your blog post and in your own words share with us what happened at this uh, fateful hotel visit. Yeah, um, I was playing at a mixed doubles event in Brantford, Ontario on the weekend, and I was rooming with another uh, female player, and the two of us were so excited to get back to our hotel and uh, crawl into bed and read our books and just kind of doze off into the night because we, we had to play, both had to play the next morning. And um, quiet time was supposed to start at 10 o'clock, and past that time, it was still pretty noisy, a little noisy in the hallway. We could certainly he- clearly hear conversations and um, people going in and out of doors and the doors being latched and the doors banging and kids running up and down the hallway. And we, we tried to be a little bit patient thinking, oh, maybe it was just, uh, you know, a short period of time, but, uh, ultimately we ended up phoning the front desk and actually had to phone the front desk like three or four times before, uh, things finally quieted down. But we blatantly heard the conversation between security and this, uh, group and, uh, they felt that, um, perhaps they were being inconvenienced because there was only us and one other uh, room in that particular hallway that was not part of their group. Um, although those two rooms we had, uh, you know, with ourselves, we had already been at that hotel for a few days and 
we're in our pajamas, we're in bed, and he suggested that maybe we should be the ones to move, and we just thought that was really inconsiderate, uh, you know, 10.30 at night, and we've been settled into our room and uh, and that kind of thing. So, uh, and then suggested that perhaps we should be the ones to just deal with the noise. <laughs> wow. And uh, we also thought that was a little inconsiderate. So, uh, you know, they, uh, it, we kind of got the sense that obviously they, well, obviously they weren't real happy with our complaint, but um you know, it sounded like a couple times there were people that blatantly banged on the wall by our door, banged on our door, and we would go and look in the people and nobody would be there. And then there were other times where people were literally just congregating outside our door uh, because they were kind of in the next room, but ended up out in the hallway having some drinks and whatever. And uh, yeah, I just, I think we both felt that it was just a blatant disrespect for any sort of uh, peace and quiet and privacy that you would expect in a hotel. Jill, how old were these kids? Well, it wasn't just kids. <laughs> it was actually the adults that were the bigger issue, which is, uh, I guess, surprising. Um, it sounded like it was a hockey group. They talked about being uh, a, a hockey team and that they were there for um, a hockey tournament. And I think it was the kids' tournament. And, and, of course, the adults are hanging around, socializing, and I completely understand that. I mean, trust me, I've been part of many of a many a curling party at a hotel. But <laughs> I can tell you that we're always pretty trying to be pretty respectful about not being out in the hallway and and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, these, these people just felt that they, I think felt that they actually owned that portion of the, the hotel because they, they had so many more people and just felt like it was, uh, you know, a little bit disrespectful. And my personal opinion on uh, hotel etiquette, hallway etiquette is that hallways are, it should be quiet time at all times. It shouldn't be somewhere that you're congregating and making a lot of noise and, you know, um, and having your door latched, that's the other pet peeve I have. Having your door on your latch and going in and out of your door and letting the door bang, that is like can be super annoying. And uh, yeah, so we just felt like it was kind of blatantly disrespectful to uh, other hotel guests, not just ourselves, because I know that there were other people that complained. Former world curling champion Jill Officer of Manitoba's own joining us this afternoon, talking about the blog post she wrote that's available at Global News website, global.ca. Jill's house when inconsiderate people make you feel like an inconvenience. And Jill, you've traveled all over the world for for a, several years now. Is this a growing trend or is this a one-off? I, I don't know. I guess maybe maybe it's a one-off for now. It's not something that I, you know, there's been times in the past where maybe I've made a, a phone call down to the lobby late at night asking for, you know, some assistance to have the people in the hallway or the people next door to quiet down. And, and you know what, usually people are pretty good. Like sometimes you get carried away and don't realize the, the noise level that you're at. And, you know, security tells you to quiet down and usually people quiet down. And that's kind of the, the extent of the problems I've ever had in the past. And I mean, we stay in a lot of hotels and a lot of different places across the country and around the world and um you know this was certainly one of the more memorable experiences given the um the response by the the people as well as uh how it just continued to go on regardless of what security said uh you know it went on for hour and a half before it was finally quiet so they went downstairs uh just before midnight finally so were you able to actually get to sleep after that yeah i was able to get to sleep after that finally um, you know, my, my plan, I, you know, I'm pretty, uh, most athletes are pretty particular about the sleep that they get and how much sleep they get, especially, you know, during competitions. And I had a pretty good idea of what time I wanted to be asleep based on what time I needed to get up. And so 
you know, that kind of uh, impacted that a little bit. And I was a little bit more tired the next morning than I, than I had planned. But uh, I guess on my side of it, you got to learn to deal with it, right? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. I was just, how did you end up curling the next morning? Did it affect your performance at all? I don't think that it affected my performance, actually, but we did lose. <laughs> Maybe I should blame it on that then. <laughs> well, that, that would be the trend in society, right? Would be to blame your misfortune or your performance on somebody else's actions. Somebody else, yeah. So that would be commonplace. Uh, last one for you, Jill. And I don't know how much you golf in the summer, but clearly curling is uh, such a gigantic part of your life. And I don't know if there are two sports that are founded. Uh, they're maybe their uh, centralizing principles of the sport are etiquette and decorum in both games. And in St. Catharines, Ontario this year at, at, at the Women's Championship, unfortunately, you were a spectator for that. And in St. John's, Newfoundland at the, at the Men's Championship, the crowd and their uh, rambunctiousness at both events, that seemed to be sort of almost a tipping point in my mind of the etiquette and decorum of the crowd. Is that changing and curling? Because for so long you, you had the attitude you never cheer um, the team that you're, you're cheering against. You don't cheer for a miss by that team. You, you're respectful when they're settling down in the hack, etc. All sorts of different uh, rules for, for, the, for the spectators. Is that changing in your sport? Uh, it seems to be changing a little bit, and I'm not totally sure why. And I mean, I think you know, um, we see that we see people become very passionate about their team, like we saw with in Newfoundland uh, at the Briar with uh, Brad Kish's team. And you know, uh, from what I've heard, you know, not a lot of the teams were too upset about having you know their misses cheered for and things like that. I think, I think it. it uh, it would become maybe a problem, especially if it's a championship game or one game on the ice and somebody's sitting in the hack ready to throw and, you know, somebody blurts something out. I, maybe that's a little bit too far, but I think the passion and the uh, the noise, if that's what it's going to be, I think that that's, that's, that's all good. I think it just uh, adds to the in-venue experience for curling. Um, you know, when we played at the Olympics in Russia, it was constantly noisy because it was a group of uneducated fans, but they were passionate about their Russian team. And that was what made it exciting. And we thought that it just added to the experience for ourselves as well. So not all change is necessarily bad. No, I agree. <laughs> Jill, I know you're heading out onto the ice. We appreciate you taking some time. Apologize yes, uh, to the uh, other ladies that are waiting for you right now. And we'll, we'll <laughs> no catch worries. up again. Okay, thanks, guys. Thanks, Jill. Jill Officer. You can go to globalnews.ca and search for Jill Officer, her blog post, Jill's House, When Inconsiderate People Make You Feel Like an Inconvenience. So is, is you were talking about, you made the comparison to golf and to curling. So yeah. are curling crowds, can we now expect, just as someone's getting ready to throw, can we now expect curling crowds to start things saying things like, mashed potatoes! <laughs> Not ketchup and mustard. Bubba <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if it's going to come to that. Okay. But the sport is definitely changing in terms of the in arena, in arena experience. And they may have to embrace this curling because there, in my mind, is no better sport for television than curling. In fact, when there's a multi-sheet event going on, uh, it's very difficult, you know, to see what's going on in the game. And I'm not trying to dissuade anyone from going out to support and to watch curling, but there's no better game for television.
like hockey, football, you name it. Curling is, in my mind, the ultimate television sport. And in order for the in arena experience to be one that people may want to engage in, they may have to change some of these rules regarding decorum. They may have to encourage more shouting. They may have to do what the NBA has done. You see how the NBA, they play music now like all the time. It doesn't matter if your team has the ball or the other team has the ball. Uh, Things have changed over the years and it may be time for curling to embrace that. As far as golf goes, like golf goes, I always wanted to engage in something called rock and roll golf. I say, you know what? Throw some speakers on that course, crank it up. Let's go. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, I actually like to bring a Bluetooth speaker and put it in the cart, or just put it in my push cart, provided it's not disturbing, because a lot of guys don't like to oh. have the music. But that is a more common thing now to hear. See guys riding by you in their cart, and they've got tunes blasting away. Uh, and, and, of course, there's the, the Phoenix Open on the PGA that has the 16th hole. It's surrounded by a stadium, and a lot of players hate it because it's really daunting, and a lot of players really love it because it's so exciting to, to walk into a stadium. It's such an unusual thing for them, and I think that that is also changing in golf, but you there, there still has to be some fan decorum there. You can't... You can't have people screaming while you're taking a shot. Isn't that where the uh, now phrase that I hate on every single shot? Get in the hole! Isn't that where that was born? And I think Tiger Woods had his very first career professional hole-in-one in in his very first appearance at the Phoenix Open at number 16. I think. Wow. You can correct me if I'm incorrect. Well, here's what we'll do. We'll pause. We'll do the forecast, and we will. I will Google this while we're doing that. One nineteen, Mackling and McGarry. Your forecast next. T at sixteen. Listen to the crowd. Tigers got one hundred and fifty-two yards. Should be just a nice, comfortable nine iron for him. They're going to go nuts when he hits this thing. You're right, Greg. Tiger Woods hit a hole-in-one at the Phoenix Open in 1997, and the crowd goes insane. You heard them go insane as soon as he hit the ball. So, Was that his first PGA hole-in-one? I don't think it was. Oh, I can't, it wasn't? I, we can't confirm that? Not yet. I would need to do need some more time here, but uh, okay. I saw one thing here. Tiger Woods uh, hole or where is it? First PGA hole-in-one? Uh, I had something here. If anyway. only there was a machine that would give us all these answers in one fell swoop. What song is that? I don't know. Okay, well, so here, while we're... We don't need to do this right now. We can get someone to text us at 204-780-6868. I think I found it. Okay. I believe his first one came in the 1996 Greater Milwaukee Open. He's only had three in his PGA PGA Tour competition, 97 Phoenix Open and the 1998 Sprint International. So he had one in consecutive years, 96, 97, 98. Okay. So if you know differently, 780-6868. That's what my cracked research team of me, myself, and I have come up with uh, in a short amount of time that we had to do so. So when we were talking about Jill's house, Jill Officer, Canadian Olympic gold medalist, Winnipeg mom, she has a blog, Jill's House. 
is the headline. Jill's house. When inconsiderate people make you feel like an inconvenience. Story of uh, her in Brantford, Ontario, where she's trying to get some sleep because she's got to go. She got a curl early in the morning, and there's a hockey team that is running up and down the hall. They're banging on the walls after she complained to the front desk. And then they they said, well, we have most of this floor booked except for a couple of rooms. Can't they move? Why do we have to be quiet? Do you think that that has anything to do with the growing sense of entitlement that people seem to have? That why should we have to be quiet? It feels that way. It really felt that way. I've read the uh, article a couple of different times, and it feels and seems to reinforce that each time that I read the article, I feel stronger that that's exactly uh, what's happening. Now, full disclosure, that doesn't mean I've never, you know, we've all spent weekends in Las Vegas or Grand Forks or some Mexico. I mean, when you're in Mexico, there's a certain amount of expectation, depending on the hotel that you're at, that you're going to have to put up with a little bit of noise because, you know, you're there on spring spring break. You know who's in the hotel. Uh, there's going to be shenanigans involved. But there are times and places for different things. And I think that the public at large wants those times and places to be on their terms versus the terms that have been established over time, including this story about United Airlines and these two young girls that were told they couldn't fly on United last weekend. And that got us talking about the whole idea of time and place as well. And we should probably pick up on that on the other side of our news at the bottom of the hour. That's right. Global News coming up at 1.30. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. That's exactly what it is. Sean, your ear is outstanding. My knowledge of my own inner son book is quite deplorable. <laughs> what is this? Baby elephant. Baby elephant walk. Wow. Correct, Jeff Fortune. Baby elephant walk. Yeah, that's what I was humming while I was wait, waiting for you to Google that Tiger Woods information. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it's, it's relaxing. It's so funny. Keep playing that, Jeff. It's so funny. The little, little idiosyncrasies and the tiniest things that we'll say that will capture the imaginations of our listeners and the emails and the text messages, they're the best because you catch on to these things and we think they're an inside joke and, and that means uh, you're getting it and so we appreciate that. Thanks very much, Sean. 1997, the flood of the century, 20 years ago, I believe it was April 5th, was the big snowstorm that kind of changed the tide, mm. so to speak, changed everything for us here in southern Manitoba. I did not live here at the time, lived in British Columbia, watched with uh, bated breath, with concern from afar, even considered coming home to help sandbag back in 1997. I hope, Brett, that 1997 is a comparison only because 20 years seems to be a landmark Anniversary, and not because we're going to be dealing with anything anywhere close to this. 680C Joe Christian Amel is on the scene in Selkirk. Highway 204, Christian, has been closed for a couple hours now. Is that where we find you? Yes, that's where I'm staring at a road closed blockade. It's basically at the intersection of 204 and 212. 
every couple minutes, a couple cars come by thinking, you know, they ignored the road close signs a few K back thinking I can get through this and then they have to turn around. I think that they probably thought they'd be able to turn on 212, but they can't. It's flooded. And I talked to a local resident. He thinks it's going to get worse. It's going to kind of overflow the intersection. Right now, hypothetically, you would be able to turn on 212, but looking straight down 204, the only way you're getting through there is if you've got a canoe. It is completely underwater. You can't see any road. That's right now about a kilometer away from the Selkirk Bridge, which was closed a few hours ago because of the flooding. Uh, The ice jams are building up, and that's why this water has overflowed. Again, the local resident I talked to, he just lives about a kilometer away from this. He says this happens every year. It just depends on the weather, how long it lasts, how much flooding there is, uh, and it depends on where the ice jam actually is. Well, and Christian, I'm just looking at all the stuff that you're putting up on our Twitter feed at 680CJOB, and I see that uh, maybe the fact that it is because this happens every year that you see you have a, you were able to get video of a guy and his dog enjoying the situation. Yes, so that is Zoe, uh, golden retriever. He says uh, the owner says it's a true retriever because he'd throw a ball into the water. Dog would chase it, bring it back. Now, I do have some bad news to report. The dog did lose the ball. Uh, oh. He couldn't find it in the water. It flowed away. The current took it away. He spent about 10 minutes trying to find it, but the dog indeed has lost the ball. We also have outstanding footage uh, from Global Winnipeg, courtesy of the uh, traffic helicopter. Casey Gibb has been mm-hmm. up there for the last couple of uh, hours or so gathering footage. And this video that I'm looking at right now, Christian, you, you mentioned the fact that there were people traveling down to 12, maybe with the anticipation of being able to make their way down that highway or maybe using 204 to get to 212. When this video was shot, 212 was was still an option, and here we are now at 138 in the afternoon, and it's no longer uh, the case. Yeah, and this is happening very quickly. Like the the water's level is going to keep rising onto the road more and more. Uh, this basically happened overnight that you couldn't use this road anymore, and it's just something that they have to deal with in this area uh, every year. The guy I talked to says. It's just an extra, you know, 12 minutes out of his way. He didn't seem really bothered by it at all. He really resigned to the fact this happened. And I have to say, this is the first time I've seen ice jams like this before. And it's quite spectacular as you head up 204. And when you first get on it from Lockport, the river's wide open. And then you get to the point now where I am looking at the intersection of 204 and 212. And just the, the river is completely jammed with all this ice. And it's quite something to see. Well, the river takes a hard left turn there if you're going north. It takes a hard left turn to the west and then a hard right turn just uh, north of the Selkirk Golf Course to kind of continue its way to Lake Winnipeg. So it's more or less a natural spot for this to happen. Right. And And again, this is something that they do experience every year. And one hypothesis is that this, and I don't know if this is for sure, but uh, the 204 was built like this lower to have the overflow to protect the Selkirk Bridge, which is closed, from having the ice build up and then maybe damage the bridge. Well, we'll trust you to get more of that information as uh, you dig and as you ask and speak to more people with or without puppy dogs out for a stroll. (laughs) 
All right. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Christian. Christian O'Mell joining us, 680 CJOB's Christian O'Mell on the scene in Selkirk, Manitoba, as the first essential flood event of 2017 is upon us in this part of the world. And he's right when they say that this happens every year. As I think about it, it is something that we end up talking about inevitably every year around flood around this time, Ice Jam in Selkirk. That's why they always have to send the Amphibex out that way early on to try to get ahead of it. But it seems to be that uh, no matter how hard they try, it just happens. So that'd be have frustrating. You go- have you golfed at Selkirk golf I, course before? I have played in Selkirk, yeah. And of course, that's got to be frustrating for them because inevitably they become flooded. But Shadow Davis was telling me this morning that they've built a rather large berm to control the water. Of course, that would only control it if it got so high. Uh, they finally said, you know what? We're not taking this from you anymore, Mother Nature. We're going to build a dike, and they've done so. So uh, if you're listening and you have any association with the uh, Selkirk Golf Course there, they are typically hardest hit this time of year. be interesting uh, to learn from you whether or not there are any uh, sandbagging operations or anything else associated with these ice jams on the Red River at Selkirk at the bridge that connects East Selkirk with uh, the main city of Selkirk on Highway 204. It is 142 on 680 CJOB. And once again, if you want to see pictures and video of this, you can go to our Twitter feed at 680 CJOB. And of course, we'll have more on our website, cjob.com. It is 142 on Mackling and McGarry. Your forecast is coming up next. We were talking with uh, Jill Officer about her experience at a hotel where she was made to feel like an uh, an inconvenience by other inconsiderate people. We've had a few texts, uh, some people, you know, saying, oh, you know, get over it, Jill. It's not that big a deal. But most people saying, you know, even campgrounds have quiet time to imagine that a hotel doesn't have quiet time that can be enforced. Seems ridiculous. Yep. And we also got a text message from someone who really knows this business. Ed says, I represented hotel workers for 30 years. What's wrong with the hockey team chaperones? Most hotels wouldn't tolerate that behavior. The long-term customers would leave. Well, and it sounds like this is a team. uh, She said it was a team of kids. And I'm wondering if it was uh, if the adults, the the grown-ups that she was referring to, sounds like they were probably youngsters as well because they took offense when Jill had contacted the hotel staff and the hotel staff came and talked to them. And then after that, the the team started banging on the door, on her room door and banging on the wall and just hanging outside, right outside their door with drinks as though they were trying to exact some some revenge. Well, if they have kids that are of the age that they're playing in hockey tournaments, these these parents have to be of a certain adult age, I would imagine. Well, and that's, you know, you got to wonder, is it, is it the parents? Is it the, well, the coaching the pa- staff? That's the parents are setting the example, right? They're the ones grumbling about, oh, how dare you? How dare you tell us to calm down? We have 12 rooms of 14 on this floor, and... Well, we're a hockey team, gosh darn it, and we'll make all the noise we want. <laughs> tell those other people over there sleeping, tell them to move. It's a children's hockey team. This is the most important thing on earth. Mm, now you're getting around to the whole culture of it all, Brett McGarry. 
Anyway, the less said about that because uh, I don't. I so many of my friends are involved in that that hockey culture, and they're such great people and such uh, great experiences for kids. But uh, part of the hockey culture world is definitely broken, and and that's part of it. This whole idea of of entitlement. Now, speaking of entitlement, decorum, and etiquette. I'm going to combine the the three things. Brett, we know about your love affair with golf. Yes. And golf is a solitary sport, especially when you're at the driving range, right? You're working to overcome your demons, the flaws in your swing. I don't want to get too deep into this because I'm going to make you depressed. But (laughs) the idea of going to the driving range is to work on things on your own unless you've hired and, and or enlisted the help of a coach or somebody that knows the game better than you do. But golfers are famous for their unsolicited advice. I'm at the Golf Dome on Sunday. Just wanted to go hit some golf balls for a half hour or so. And I, the way it works is you're, you have, for those who are unfamiliar with golf, I have 14 clubs in my bag and they, they, I have short clubs and then I have mid-range clubs and then they, they get progressively longer. So you, the idea that the way that you're supposed to do it is, from what I understand, is you start with your shorter clubs and you work your way up and you finish with your driver. And so that's what I always do. I start with my my wedges, so the shorter clubs. And usually that's sort of an easy way to ease into, to warm up and get started. And I couldn't do anything right this time. And I couldn't figure out why. Every shot I took, I was just hitting them way off course, way off direction, to the point where the guy beside me could, he noticed how frustrated I was and probably could hear me cursing <laughs> under my breath. And I kept having to sort of walk off and, and take a moment. And he finally decided to come over and say hello and just started to, to he starts to give me some tips. Mm. As to, well, you know, if, uh, if, if I have problems, you might want to, tr- like, this is what I do, so maybe you want to try it. And at this point, like, I was having a, a hard time just maintaining my composure because I was so angry at myself and my mistakes. The last thing I needed was someone to try to offer me help. I needed to be left alone. But at the same time, this guy's being really nice, and maybe he's listening right now. If you're listening, I'm sorry <laughs> for being. Uh, I'm going to say that I'm kind of a jerk in this situation. But oh, in that you're moment, the jerk in the situation. I feel like I. Oh. Because I, I didn't tell him to get bent or anything. I said, "Okay, thank you. I'll try that." <laughs> I, well, I didn't think you would tell him to get bent, but it's sometimes difficult when you're in that state of mind. When people are offering you advice, and it doesn't matter if it's golf, it could be problems at home or at work, and you're having a beer, and you start sharing your problems, and everybody starts bombarding you with advice. I don't really want your advice. I'm just sharing right now. Yes. And so I thought your dilemma was more, how do you ask this guy politely to buzz off. Well, and that's where I was that's where I'm going with this is that I I feel guilty, I feel bad that I didn't want his help, but at the same time, I didn't want his help. And that's what I wonder, how do you say to someone in a, in a polite way or without being a jerk, "Listen, thank you for the advice, but I'm not in the frame of mind to accept your advice right now. Leave me alone. I just need to work through this on my own." I'm doing something wrong. I'll figure it out. That's why we come here. That's why we're here. We're here to practice, but go away. <laughs> How do you say that nicely to somebody? There, that sounded there pretty way? nice. That sounded pretty nice. But wait, Without I were... the go away part, maybe. You might want to leave the go away part. <laughs> Get lost. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, that's a tough one, right? Because there are all sorts of scenarios. You might be a parent in the grocery store, yep. and there are those people mm. who will assume their way into your situation and start giving you parenting tips when your five-year-old is screaming because they want a Kit Kat or a sucker or a lolly or some sort of candy that you, you know that you've already told them that they can't have. Oh, there, there's no harm in giving them a little bit of candy. Get lost. I'll deal with this. But how do you say, get lost, I'm dealing with this? There's quite often times when you just want to be left alone. How about when you're on an airplane? Oh, yeah, when you're when you you sit down and you want to be left alone, and I've then you've got a chatty night. Kathy mm-hmm. sitting beside you. Mm-hmm. I'm usually the chatty Kathy, but every <laughs> once in a while, it's like, yeah, I'm on my way home. No offense to Kathys out there, and none at all. I'm on my way home. I've been up all night. I was doing X, Y, and Z. You know, either uh, working on a presentation, or maybe I was entertaining, or or out being entertained, and I'm not interested in talking to you. That's always a, a difficult situation to be in. So we'd like your advice. Shoot us an email or a text because we're going to move on from this topic, but we'd like to hear from you. How do you deal with these, what can be delicate situations when you just want to be left alone? So after this guy gives me his tip and I say, okay, thanks. He did leave me alone and I resumed. I just put the, I finally put those clubs away and I made my way up to my driver. And by the time I was hitting my driver, it was actually hitting that fairly well. And the guy beside me says, good Lord, who are you angry at? Because I was just hitting them one after another, and it's uh, it's really loud and echoey in there. So it's I guess it sounded like I was firing a cannon every time I hit my driver. And uh, I, said, I said, well, I, I'm angry at myself. I'm not doing so well. And then I went back to my wedges, and the same thing. I just couldn't hit them. So then he comes over and starts talking. Oh. Well, what happened to the confidence you had with the driver? <laughs> And then he stands there to watch. <laughs> he just sort of stands there and to watch me hit the ball. And but, but, I finally had to walk away. And he said, do you give up? I said, no, I just need a minute and I don't need an audience. And I, I feel, again, I feel bad because he's was a friendly guy trying to be helpful. And that's why I feel bad because both of these people had the best intentions and they were both really nice guys just trying to be supportive. And I didn't want their support. But so, at the same time, I feel like I should be able to say, you know what? I don't want your support. So your chi is emanating <laughs> and it's saying, I need help. Things are not going this way. But your personality and your emotional construct says, back off. I don't need your help. And as uh, Sarah says on text here, or maybe somebody else, for times like that, in capital letters, what I need are less people telling me what I need. <laughs> and you made a great reference when you talked about how people offer up unsolicited advice when you're just sharing, when you're just venting. Sometimes you just need someone to listen. But and in particular, guys are are notorious for this. Guys go into guys are problem solvers, right? right. So they want you present a problem. Immediately, guys want to solve said problem for you. Oh, well, I know how you can fix that. And I don't necessarily need to hear your advice or want your advice. Sometimes I just want to, as you pointed out, sometimes you just got to get some stuff off your chest. You watch Two and a Half Men ever? No. Okay. Oh, yeah. You detest that show, right? Okay. I won't use that reference then. No, I'm familiar with the program. So Charlie's dealing with Alan's ex-wife. And all he's standing, she's spewing off about this whole litany of things that she's upset about. And Charlie's just standing there. I understand. 
I see. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> and before he knows it, he's hosting all of, I can't remember her name, all of her friends at his house for what amounts to a counseling session based on, I see. I understand. And now he's gained this huge reputation as being so understanding and and supportive. And really all he's done is stood there and pretended to listen to the concerns of these women. And now he's having a great big party with Alan's ex-wife and all his and all her good looking friends out on his his deck. Guys, more I understand. <laughs> We'll get you a long way versus trying to come up with the ultimate solution. Just a bit of advice. The news is coming up next on 680 CJOB. 205, Thursday afternoon, Carolyn Claussen will join us at 2.30. We'll talk about dating scams, the online types in particular. How do we fall victim to these and how do they affect you moving forward? But before we do that, we want to visit with 680 CJOB and Global News' uh, Keith McCullough. They uh, are doing a great job, our Global News and 680CJB, our news uh, room, doing an incredible job looking at the journey being made by asylum seekers illegally crossing the border into our province through our new series, Seeking Asylum. Yesterday, Keith was in Emerson. He joined us from Emerson Live, Sean Leslie in Minneapolis. Uh, just a, a fantastic production on Global News at 6 o'clock last night, Keith. But the story now shifts to, and the focus shifts to how do those that find their way to Manitoba assimilate themselves into our culture, into our community? Yeah, it's about integration, right? And I, I think we've talked for much of the last day and a half, guys, about the community of Little Mogadishu and how these people are getting into Canada and why they're coming to Canada and the issues back in Somalia and, and stuff like that. Uh, but the focus on our series shifts a little bit tonight to integration and, and okay they're here they're coming we expect more of these people to keep coming as the weather gets warmer how do we try to make sure that if they do want to stay in winnipeg and set up their life here in winnipeg that they're productive members of society here and not falling into the criminal element and and things like that so that's what we're kind of looking at more tonight on, on the Seeking Asylum series. Because that's supposed to be the win, right, Brett? When people come here, is that eventually they're going to become productive pieces and people within our society. That's supposed to be the golden carrot for Manitoba and for Canada in welcoming these people is that the short-term pain will reserve, result in long-term gain and, and people contributing to the economy. And we spoke with a sociology professor who said exactly that, Greg, at the University of Manitoba. Her name's uh, Lori Wilkinson, and you'll hear more from her on the global news on the television side at six o'clock. But she's saying, you know, yes, there's some upfront costs. First of all, not all these people stay here. Many of them want to go to Toronto or other Canadian cities. Many of them are not allowed to stay in Canada if they have any sort of red flags. But the ones who do and want to be citizens here in Winnipeg and Manitoba, we do have to pay for some things to get them on their feet. But in the long run, the numbers show that we actually end up making that money back. 
So if you look at the long-term, say, labor market trajectory of an average refugee, in the short term, yep, it, it takes a little while to get them to learn English, get them a decent paying job. Um, but in the long term, um, the average refugee will actually pay more in taxes than they'll ever take out in any kind of social services, including the social services that are giving to them, given to them when they first arrive. One of the things that about refugees that many people don't know is 60% of them come to Canada and migrate worldwide before their 29th birthday. So that means that they have a lot of time, you know, so to speak, to learn the language, go to school in their new country of origin, and then of course have a long labor market um, history um, that allows them to be productive, um, engaged citizens in our society. I know Keith, uh, Laurie Wilkinson in that clip said something that reminds me of a text we received yesterday because she said that they'll pay more in taxes than they ever take from the system in terms of social services. Uh, We got a text yesterday uh, saying, well, I I think, and and I'm paraphrasing here, but I believe the text was, well, if Mohammed gets stuck in the mud as he's crossing the border, I'm sure we'll give him a pair of new pair of shoes and socks and all sorts of stuff. Uh, from our tax dollars. And that, that's the that's the attitude that a lot of people who are calling in and texting in and listening to this series have taken. And it's certainly an opinion that, that they're entitled to. And there's a feeling like these people are going to cost us money to take care of. We've heard our premier, Brian Pallister, say we need more support from Ottawa. We need more support from the federal government on this. Uh, but people like Lori Wilkinson say... The success stories, the ones who end up becoming people who live in Manitoba and having jobs and raising families and contributing things, they actually outweigh those costs and they'll actually generate more in the economy and they'll actually pay more in taxes than those negative implications that come up front. When we were speaking with the mayor of Little Mogadishu yesterday... I asked him about the fear within the Somali community in Minneapolis, in Little Mogadishu, about ultimate radicalization and about crime, because that's the, that's the flip side, right? Yeah. Is that those are the genuine concerns for a lot of us, is that these individuals will come, they will not either want to work, they won't work, and what they'll do is gravitate either towards a criminal element or they may become radicalized or they're here to fulfill some sort of radical Islam agenda. And that's why they've come in the first place. And there is a belief that I think a lot of people in this community have that some of these people are sneaking across the border because they're running from criminal charges or that they mean to do Canada harm. And I think what border services people would like to get out there is that we're not letting those people into the country. Canada isn't quite as soft a touch as people might think in terms of just letting anyone come to Canada. But there have been issues in our city, guys, with Somali refugees in gangs before. Phil Hayert, a name that people may remember, a Winnipeg teenager, just wrong place, wrong time, more than 10 years ago now, walking down the street, West End, gets hit by a stray bullet. There's gang fighting going on. And he was killed. And it was a a massively infamous case in our community. And one of the gangs involved there was called the Mad Cows, made up largely of Somali immigrants in our community. So there's a fear that some of these people are going to come here and end up getting involved with the criminal element. So we asked Wilkinson about that. She says, yeah, there's a risk, but it might not be as big a risk as people might think. 
People are recruited into gangs when they feel marginalized. So in that initial integration process, if they're not feeling like there's a place for them or they feel really marginalized or they feel hopeless, then they become prime targets for gang activity. Um, they can also be prime targets for gang uh, membership if they're lonely, right? So some guy comes around and starts being nice to you and asks you to do things and you don't have any friends, you know, you, you, you might take a chance that way. Um, but I think that the, the link between refugees and gangs is pretty um, small. It involves a small number of people. It's not the average refugee. So Abdirazak Behe mentioned this yesterday when we spoke to him, the mayor of Little Mogadishu, and this whole idea that all communities deal with the potential for radicalization. Here in Winnipeg, the most famous radicalized Canadian was a white kid from Charleswood. Aaron Driver. We have all sorts of issues with gangs of all descriptions, of all ethnic backgrounds in our community. That doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean, oh, let's welcome in one more player in the gang war. But this is a societal issue overall. It's not exclusive to Somali or any other type of refugee. And I think where it goes big picture with what we've been talking about in terms of Brian Pallister, the premier, and Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, is governments need to make sure that we're spending the money or getting the money here in Manitoba to properly get these people on their feet in our community. Because if you just say, fine, you can stay, and then it's out of sight, out of mind, and they end up living in a rough area in the North End or the West End, and they don't really know anyone, and they don't speak the language, and they're in a a crummy apartment, and suddenly a couple gang members see them on the street, and they come up and put their arm around this young, vulnerable refugee. That's how they fall into the wrong crowd and that's how they can end up joining these gangs and these gangs can potentially form. So I think he, as we move this discussion forward and this series continues, by the way, guys, next week here on 680 CJOB and on Global, we'll have more stories about this. But as we go forward, how do we make sure the ones that do stay in Winnipeg and Manitoba, because those are really the ones that we're worried about that we're sort of responsible for. How do we make sure that they end up being success stories that you guys have on this show in three, four or five years? As entrepreneurs and, and, and business owners. And not a statistic, not a something that you're reading in the 230 newscast about stray bullets or a, a murder happening in our city. How do we do that? It's it's a complicated question. We probably can't answer it now, but that's sort of where the conversation goes moving forward. How long does it take for their applications to to be processed? It can be varying lengths of time in the United States, and that's part of why so many of them are coming here. They're waiting 5-6 years just to get a hearing on whether they'll be able to stay in the United States. So they get there, they're given sort of a work permit, you can stay but you're not a citizen. And they just can't afford to pay a lawyer for that long or they're not wanting to wait that long and now they're afraid of what they're hearing from Donald Trump. And so they end up coming to Canada. In terms of the application process here, it can take it can take a while too and many of these people are detained if they if there are red flags that are noticed by border services people in Canada. But it it can definitely be a long and a convoluted and a complicated process. And again, I think the lines of communication are not really open 
from border services and from immigration and from the federal government in Canada. And that's what creates a lot of this fear that a lot of people in our community have because we are not being told that the bad guys are being sent away. So you can't help but assume that maybe there's a chance that they're just being, that they're fooling people, that they're being allowed to stay in Canada and do harm. Many of us think we have an idea or can somewhat imagine where these people have come from and what they've dealt with and what has forced them or encouraged them. Those are the more positive words I can use to make such a radical decision and maybe radical is definitely the wrong word. But to make such a bold decision to travel halfway around the world looking for something different, whether the process started in a camp, in a refugee camp, or started a different way with a self-initiated, self-funded journey to South America for some of these people up through Mexico, through into the United States. We think we have some concept of that, but I think what most people have a harder time understanding, Keith, and with the time you spent in Minneapolis, maybe you can answer this. What is it that's having them leave the United States for the perceived difference in Canada? What is that perceived difference? I, I You know, I'm hearing kind of answers that dance around that answer, but what is really the fear and the concern that's taking you from Minneapolis to Winnipeg? There's a lot of people who wouldn't take that job transfer. Yeah, it's a great question. And and some of them, for some of them, Minneapolis is just a stop. And Canada's been the end game because they think it's easier to get in or they have family in Canada or whatever. And I don't know if there is a way to put a finger on it, Greg, but there's been, I think, sort of a cocktail of things that have led people to believe that Canada is just going to be better for them and their family than the United States. It's the Justin Trudeau stance on refugees, perceived to be more welcoming. Uh, It's the Donald Trump factor, for sure, that is driving people to sort of irrational fear right now in the United States. There are people there who are citizens, who have green cards. They're citizens like Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling are, who are afraid of being sent back to Somalia just because of what they're hearing from Donald Trump, even though he couldn't touch them. They're citizens. But people there are afraid. They think Canada is more welcoming. And sometimes when you've come from a vulnerable place like they have, I think that's all that it takes to try and take the risk and make it up here to Canada. We we say this all the time with crime stories. Uh, Your station in life perception becomes reality, right, Brett? And that's, you know, if that's their perception, quickly becomes the reality in their mind. Especially in those communities where everyone talks to everyone and gossip flies around like that for sure. Global News reporter Keith McCullough, thank you so much. And we'll have more throughout the afternoon and on the evening news at 6 on Global Television. 2.23, just a few moments to recap, to sort of wrap up this half hour of the program. One more minute for Kayla LeClaire to call 204-780-6868 for come the CJOB Flyway to YouTube. Kayla LeClaire, come on, 204-780-6868. We've been touting our supremacy of Mackling and McGarry <laughs> listeners all for the last two weeks. And we are indeed ahead, but some of the other shows have closed the gap. And, well, it's a matter of honor amongst Brett, myself, and, of course, you, the listener, that we uh, qualify more listeners than anybody else. We are one ahead of the news. I know. With Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham. And you know, and I, I told Julie, without question, we would pulverize them in this competition. <laughs> and, now, wow. and now we're kind of neck and neck, so... <laughs> Well, you know what that makes that reminds me, trash talk. I I understand its place, and especially it 
If you have you ever seen, I know you like uh, the thirty for thirty docs. Have you seen the oh. one on the Fab Five? Oh, one of my favorite thirty for thirty docs. I used to hate the Fab Five because they trash talked so much, but having watched that, I have a, a new appreciation of it. But when I used to play basketball in high school or just on the in the playground. Uh, and guys would trash talk, it would always galvanize me to beat them, and generally that's what would happen. Trash talk, I, I'm i not a, a huge fan of the trash talk, and hopefully, Greg, it doesn't end up biting you in the butt. <laughs> Although I like that you use the word pulverize. It's an, mm. un, it's an underrated word. I, I'm putting it in my kit bag, and I'm leaving it there, and I'll break it out at the appropriate time. <laughs> uh, we're really getting a lot of feedback on this series uh, from asylum seekers and, you know... It's a difficult topic yep. because it's something that we've been watching around the world on the American border for decades. You know, people in Mexico, they don't even seek asylum. They just come, right? And they they just assimilate into their, you know, Mexican-American community and they work and they work under the table. They work illegally. But we've been seeing in Europe... For how many years now? Must be going on three or four years now. People from Syria and other parts of of the Middle East and of Africa who are who are trying to get away from war, who are trying to get away from famine, and amongst other uh, things that will kill tens of thousands of people this year. And I just have a hard time turning my back on people who do what, exactly what I would do in business and that's to do everything I can to succeed. What I would do for my kids and that's that if they're in danger, we'll find a safer place to give them the opportunity to live up to their, not only their expectations, but to, to, to their potential. I think that's what these people are doing on, on such a large scale. And I understand there's parts that are problematic, but it's just, it's a difficult situation without doubt, and that's why we're trying to tell different sides of the story. Mackling and McGarry, Global News at 2.30 is up next. You're back from the news delivering section of the building. Correct. Are you okay? Good? Yeah, ready. Right on. It's a good um, way for him to get his steps in every day, hey? Back and forth. Yeah, you really need... I I think I have a, might have an extra Fitbit <laughs> kicking around. I'd be interested to know how many steps you take running around here like you do. He's Brett. I'm Greg. Carolyn Clausen is here with us. It's Thursday at 2.30, so... That means we're going to talk a little bit about our emotional well-being mm-hmm. and how we're we're setting ourselves up for uh, success on that front. Uh, you walked in just after we had done that segment with with Keith McCullough, and I kind of you know I'm on the fence with certain things as it pertains to this immigration situation, these asylum seekers, and you know I said it in the newsroom this morning. Like as a parent, I would knock. On every door, whether it's for education, economic advancement, medical care, you name it. I would knock on every door I needed to, to get the answer that I want. Is that not our instinct as human beings? Well, when you said that before we went on air, that you would knock on every door. And then I said, and if you couldn't find a door, you would build one. Mm -hmm. You would create one. You would cut one open because um, there's a phrase called mama bear, right? You don't want to poke a mama bear that's between her and her cubs. We all have that instinct that's powerful to say, what can I do to keep me and mine safe? That's one of the primary instincts of our brain is how do we stay alive? How do we keep our children alive? How can we give them the best opportunities? It's deeply wired inside each of us. And so I think it's profoundly human um, and profoundly indicative of 
you know, I think I like where I live. I have no desire to move because it feels like um, I'm able to raise my children well and feel good where I am, right? It feels safe to be where I am. If people are willing to uproot and go to a completely different country at great risk and knowing what some of the regulations are, you got to know there's a good reason for them to feel inside, internally inside of them, that that's something that is worth the hassle, that it's that it's something they need to do. And how many people stay too long, right? Because that instinct that you just described about, I love where I am, I love my sense of community and everything. And, and we see these people in Aleppo and Syria and different parts of the world where it's like, why are you still there? <laughs> but that's yeah. another instinct as well, right? Is that you know, things are going to be okay and no, we just have to stand our ground. And, and that's the other side of this as well that, that gets people caught up in circumstance that, that we never want to experience and, and many of us can't imagine. Well, often we, we very much are wired to want to be safe and often it's, it's how we're wired to know that home is safe, that right when things feel unsafe, you run back home. Uh, and so when home itself begins to feel unsafe, like in Syria, then there's this what I would call cognitive dissonance, where people have to decide, do I go to a strange country with strange language and strange policies and they may not let me in and who knows what's going to happen there? Or do I stay here not knowing what's going to happen, but at least I'm home? It's really complicated and uh, people are always making the best choice they can. I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and say, how can I, you know, mess up my kids and myself further by making a poor choice? People do the best they can with what they've got. So that can translate into our relationships. Let's we, do it. We can stay in relationships longer than we should. Sure. Because we're at a certain comfort level. And we can also flee relationships too early because uh, we're always looking for something else, something better. Right. Where we have, there's a feeling inside of us that staying here is not working. I need to get out because I don't know how to make this place safe. I have to go someplace else. I think we have... The part of our brain is called the limbic system. It's the reptilian part of our brain. And it is, it's not very um, smart in terms of thinking about grocery lists and how to finish the project at work. It doesn't have language, but what it does have is what do I have to do to make sure that I stay safe? What do I have to do to get myself out of danger into safety? And it might be staying or it might be leaving. That's the flight or the fright, flight response. Um, however, it's all it's it it's hardwired inside each of us to make sure that we stay safe. Well, I think I think that translates now into the thing that we wanted to talk about, right? And and that is when those core values are challenged and when they're tread upon in a situation like dating. Mm-hmm. And because if you're at a certain age, you may be dating because either your marriage has dissolved, either amicably or otherwise. Uh, because you haven't found anybody yet mm-hmm. and you're still searching or you're in a situation where, um, yeah, enough is enough. And uh, maybe you have just never been able to find that that right person. And so we're going online now mm-hmm. to because we're wired for connection, as you say, and we're using technology to do that. But there's an opportunity there. There are lots of people that are looking to take advantage of your quest for companionship. Absolutely. And it's it's sort of a unique situation to be looking online for love. I think we're recognizing that as people can stay at home to watch Netflix and aren't going out to clubs and social dancing and, you know, all the reasons why when there was no TV at home, if you didn't want to sit at home alone in the dark, you went out and you had a chance to meet people. And it's a lot easier to be isolated these days. And so it's harder for a lot of people to meet a potential partner 
And so online is a really good way to find somebody. And the research says that your odds actually are pretty good at finding. There's a lot of people that find somebody online, right? Um, and a lot of marriages that happen when you say, you know, how did you meet each other? They'll kind of reluctantly look down and get a little, you know, blush or something. And then they'll say, we met online. It's a, it's a good place to meet somebody. However, it's also a really good place to be taken advantage of because falling in love is an inherently vulnerable act. And um, it's so easy to get taken advantage when you're falling in love at any point. But when you're when you're online, there's different ways in which you can't see some of the cues that you can see when you're when you're meeting somebody face to face. And so you're having to sort of fill in gaps. And there's a predisposition towards when you're falling in love with someone, there's a predisposition towards wanting to believe they're for your good and to give them the benefit of the doubt. And that puts you in an even greater risk. And it was, so the very thing that makes a relationship of love meaningful and it makes it happen is also what makes you so vulnerable to being scammed in an online relationship. I just want to sidestep the, the scam part of this for a moment. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, how if, if people meet online, often they're reluctant to admit that. Why is that still, that stigma still there? Why are people still afraid to say, oh, yeah, we, uh, we, we met online? Well, and I'm not sure what the stats are lately. I think at one point I heard about one in six uh, relationships that become permanent now have developed, uh, have initiated online. Uh, and you're right, there is still shame often about meeting online. And I think there's this sort of sense of if if I was, I don't know, fill in the blank, thinner, prettier, smarter, more engaging, more outgoing, whatever, that I would have met somebody in real life. And because I haven't been able to, then I will go to the second best. And that's, that somehow labels my inability my, my ability to be a partner as second rate. I think that there's that sense. Um, and I often, um, when I have clients that are struggling with that, it, it they sort of, it's, it's somehow supposed to just fall into your lap easy if you're really truly lovable. There's there's that thought, that, that lie that we tell ourselves. Um, and it's funny, we don't expect jobs to fall in our lap. We fill out job applications and pers- apply for jobs. Why wouldn't we pursue and be deliberate and mindful about wanting to find a life partner. And yet somehow, if it doesn't fall in our laps, that that somehow we often see that as as a describer of who we are in a way that is not positive. So is this the 2000s version of going to your grandparents' place <laughs> and having your grandmother say, you know, uh, Greg, how come you haven't met anybody yet? You know, Mrs. Classen, she has such a nice granddaughter. You really ought to meet her. Is that is that the same place that we imagine that we're in? Because I know, uh, you know, if you go back 20 years and your grandparents were trying to fix you up with people, you felt a little self-conscious about that. And you'd be asking yourself, what the heck is wrong with me? But don't you think that's wonderful that your grandmother would be thinking of you and potentially communicating with another grandmother to set you up? Like, that's such a beautiful story. And yet, yes, you're right. We label that as that somehow says something about you that isn't isn't positive. And I, I think I struggle with that. Um, and I just think it's harder to meet people. I, you know, I, I read stories of my great-grandparents, and they all met each other at weddings, right? They One village would travel to another village, and they would have fun at a wedding, and you would meet somebody, and that's how you met. It, that doesn't happen in the same way now. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Conexus Counseling. The website, conexuscounseling.ca. We're going to continue our conversation after your forecast, which is up next. You're used to adding the odd missing word on the fly, right? When you're reading news and such? Yeah, sometimes it happens where things, words are missing or words are, you know, 
I mean, I, especially if, if I write a story, it's always a, an adventure when I go in and read it because I <laughs> something that you've written yourself. Yes, because I typos, missing words, wrong words. It's I'll, I'll write a story, I'll I'll read it, and then I'll completely rewrite it because it's garbage. As you're on the fly, yeah. Well, you are a talented man. That's Brad. I'm Greg, and Carolyn Clausen is here with us. She's. Uh, therapist with Connexus Counseling. You can uh, check out their website and and every week you do a blog or every two weeks. And I want to commit you, Carolyn. I try to write every week, but I have to say that I was busy writing something else in the last week and I didn't get one out. (laughs) Okay, well, fair enough. So we're still working on last week's a little bit. (laughs) ConnexusCounseling.ca and our conversation. We're talking about scams and we're talking about dating online and then taking it to the scam situation where you may have got into a conversation with someone online and then you discover that ge- geography is an obstacle perhaps and they live somewhere else and and then you go down a road where well, maybe we can overcome that. And so that connection, it gets a little bit deeper, right? Even though you're just texting or emailing or maybe you're video Skyping or something like that. You know, it's so interesting how you tell the story, right? Because as you're talking about this, the listener says, oh, I could smell that a mile away, right? Like it's just all skeptical, well, right? From the outside, from the outside, from the it's outside. always so obvious. And yet from the inside, there's personal details that are attached to it. There is, it comes out of the context of relationship. Um, there's a process whereby um, the scammer manipulates and abuses a system that's designed really to help people with good intentions who really want to meet somebody. Um, and and most people are out there trying to make it work. Um, and, and, the other, and there's scammers that are abusing your trust um, in that. And the system is falling in love is about building trust. And so they work with the system that's naturally happening and they use it against you rather than for you. Isn't that what all con artists do? It's true. And there's a couple of things that people do that I think it's helpful to be aware of um, where there's this thing called grooming the person that you're going to scam. And there's um, a concept about um, sort of having throwing, throwing a little test balloon. And so rather than say, I, I need all of this money in order to be able to come visit you, they say, oh, my, I want to be able to communicate with you via my cell phone, but I'm behind on my bill. Can you help me with just a little bit, right? And so they get you to give just a little bit to them. And then what happens is is you become more invested, right? And there's this thing that develops called cognitive dissonance that says, I like this person. They're investing in me. They're saying nice, kind things about me. And they're just asking for a little bit of money. And and you have to figure out what to do with these two thoughts of this feels not right, along with all these other thoughts that it feels right. And so those those clash against each other and our brains hate clashes. And so we have to figure out how to create that cognitive dissonance, how to decrease the tension of it. And so that often is what are, without realizing it, we'll take that evidence that says red flag, we shouldn't go there, and we'll turn it into something that says, oh, but they're counting on me. And this is a sign of growing dependence in our relationship that we're really relying on each other. And you turn the red flag into a green flag because it works well in the process of developing a relationship. How damaging can it be? If you get scammed by an online relationship. Well, I think it's hugely damaging in several ways. One is that often there's the financial part of it, financial part, or if they've asked for inappropriate pictures, you don't know where they're going to go. Like there's some very real losses that way. But it also, it breaks your trust with the rest of the world. It breaks your trust in the ability to establish future relationships. And it also often increases isolation in your current relationships because when you've been scammed, 
often people feel really ashamed and they feel like it says something about how foolish they are and they're so they they hide that they don't want to let people know what they've experienced and they're reluctant to tell anybody and then that even creates distance within with their children or their friends and they don't feel as close to the people right around them so you pair that with where we started on discussing online relationships and this idea of even if you're in a successful relationship that originated online, there's still that, yeah, we met online. And so you combine that with being scammed and the fact that you're already concerned about how you're going to be perceived because you're pursuing a relationship online. And then you throw in the fact that you've been scammed for maybe several hundred bucks. The chances of you coming forward and letting other people know that you've been taken for a ride like this are probably pretty slim. Right. And then if you do have the guts to tell somebody, hopefully you've told somebody that can say, man, that sucks. How are you doing? Can I take you out? We can talk about it and you get the support. But there might be others that you would tell that then they might turn around and judge you like, man, you got taken, really? And then you feel further judged and shamed, right? And I think that's our fear and that's why we hold back. And I I think it's helpful for us all to think about how can we be supportive of each other when we see friends who make mistakes and even dumb ones? People don't wake up in the morning saying, I want to make a dumb mistake. People wake up in the morning and say, I want to do well. And in the process of that, they make mistakes. So how can we be supportive then, in a, in a, particularly in a situation like this where someone gets taken for a ride uh, through online dating? Well, I think the first thing is just to thank the other person to say, you know, it was probably really hard to tell me and you you trust me enough to tell me. And when your trust has just been violated to trust me to tell me, I, I just I, I feel really honored by that. And I want to say that I appreciate that. And you must be having a really tough time right now. Can we talk about it? Can you let me know what this has been like for you? And you let the person tell their story and you can be curious and open and supportive of it without being judgmental. So the judgmental aside, mm-hmm. we were discussing in our first hour about this idea of receiving unwanted and unsolicited advice. Mm. So that plays into that too. Maybe you can wrap that whole other conversation in a bow for us as well in terms of, you know, how do we be supportive without bombarding the under, other individual with, well, I would have done this and you should do that. And just listening and being supportive, how, how do we approach that? And is that the way to go? And is it genuine? And is it factual that a lot of times when we are spitballing and sharing with our friends or our partners about what happened, we're not really looking for ways to fix it. We just need to say it out loud. Well, it's funny. I was leading a retreat last weekend and they were talking about the number one ways that people want to give support to their friends is to give advice the number one ways people want to receive support from their friends is to be heard. (laughs) And that when their friends provide them with advice, they feel judged, put down, shut down, and they don't get to be able to feel supported. Um, And we sort of all chuckled at the irony of that. Um, I think that... what we often realize is that hindsight's twenty twenty. By the time someone comes to you and says, "I've been scammed," they know what they should have been done. What they should have done. They don't need your advice. Trust me, they know, and they're beating themselves up that they didn't do that. And so, when you try to give advice in an effort to be helpful, what you're really doing is saying, "You made poor choices. You, I don't know what you were thinking. I know better than you." And you have that person feel even worse. They don't feel supported. They feel lousier. So I think um, the challenge is to remember that the other person has been hurt and is wounded because of some honest mistakes, which now they are smart enough to mostly figure out for themselves. Uh, And if you can hear their story and if you can hold some of their pain and really be there for them, 
often they're able to get to what they should do and how to move forward effectively. They have that inside of them if you just let them get there. If you try to rush them, we're often giving advice because that ends our own suffering. If I tell what you what you what you should be doing, then I won't feel as uncomfortable. If I know that I can keep you safe by giving you advice or I can fix your problem, then I won't have to see you in pain and I won't feel awkward. And we're short-circuiting the other person's pain by trying to end our own in a way that's not fair to their story. Carolyn Clausen is a therapist with Connexus Counseling. Her blog is at connexuscounseling.ca and you can read this week or the, the most recent post that inspired this conversation and last week's conversation. It's simply called Scammed. Again, that website, connexuscounseling.ca. Carolyn Clausen is her name. Our names are Mackling and McGarry and the news at 3 o'clock is up next. It's 3.08... I can't say it's gorgeous out, but it is 10 degrees. I haven't been outside for a while. Might be windy still. I'm not sure. But 10 degrees, I'll take it. Uh, Not getting much warmer. In fact, a little cooler single digits for the next few days. He's Brett. I'm Greg. And Brett, I'm throwing a curveball at you because while you're in delivering the news and and the weather at the top of the bottom of the hour. I'm scouring Twitter, Facebook, the internet okay, uh, for other things, right? That might have happened while we're sitting here in the studio. We don't want there to be a world disaster happening. And for whatever reason, people decide not to come in and tell us about it. I imagine that might not happen. So I don't know if this qualifies, but first question, did you ever have to have uh, powdered milk as a kid? I don't recall. I, I would imagine you would have known. Yeah, yeah. If is that something I'd remember? Like I, oh, yeah, I think okay. so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and what about like uh, the chocolate milk? Do you like the quick syrup? Did you ever do the powdered, quick, I, stir it in, well, or I just had the, the straight carton chocolate milk? Well, would, I, I had the the quick syrup. I don't. I think I may have had the powdered chocolate milk once or twice. But I had lots of quick, although I much prefer just straight up chocolate milk. Okay. Uh, like, just go buy a jug of chocolate milk. Well, I once th- drank four liters of chocolate milk in, in one night. You did not. I'm a disgusting person. You are not, but I can't believe you did that. Tammy Cole is the program director over at uh, Peggy 99.1 and Power 97. Yep. Located on the same floor here at Cora Central here in Winnipeg. And she just posted something on her Facebook page that I am really uncertain about. Oh. It's called PB and Me Natural 100% Peanuts. It's powdered peanut butter. What? It's powdered peanut butter. Let me see that. Yeah, Greg is uh, I'm just going to uh, reach over and grab Greg's, Greg's iPhone. Pete... Have you tried this, folks? 780-6868. Call or text. We typically don't take calls in this part of the program, but I, I, this is this has just come to my attention in the last six minutes. 90%. And I, I just, I, I want to know if you've tried this because instantly wow. Tammy's had a bunch of people said, yeah, I tried it. It's fantastic. Tried it. It's terrible. Uh, I'm just... Why? Why? Well, I'm 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 trying to. I mean, I'll have to see it in action. But if it's powder, does that not take away the fact that it's peanut butter? butter? Isn't it just powdered peanuts? Although there's that stuff you sprinkle on the bread uh, to make garlic toast. It's kind of a, a shake. 
garlic shaker salt? thing. No, no, it's like actual, almost like a flaked dried okay. butter flavoring with some fake dried parsley, and you shake it onto your bed. PB and Me is an all natural, low calorie powdered peanut butter. Our peanuts are slow roasted and pressed to remove the oil, leaving behind a light flour high in protein with 90% less calories from fat than a traditional peanut butter. With only 45 calories and upwards of 6 grams of protein per serving, you can enjoy PB&Me in your shakes and smoothies as a gluten-free ingredient in baking or mixed with water for a delicious creamy peanut butter. Well, we got a couple of, just a quick Google here. It looks like this stuff's been around for a few years now. I'm just looking at some videos of it. And yeah, it's just, it looks like protein powder or something. Got a mm. couple of text messages at 204-780-6868. One person says, we have powdered peanut butter at home and it is delicious, yo. Another one <laughs> okay. says, I use powdered peanut butter in my shakes every day. Yummy. Really? So... Mm, who says that Facebook doesn't educate you? So I guess that's how it works. You got to you get the powder and then you got to mix it up with whatever. Hey, I'd be I'd be interested to try it. Would I you, love would you peanut, try it. Sure, why not? I love peanut butter. I like the the natural. I've really taken to na- the natural peanut butter where it's just we open it and it's got that layer of oil at sure, the top. Sure, you got to spin you it gotta, in. You got to mix it all up. I right. like the texture of it. And there is less sugar in that, as far as I understand. I should pay more attention to the ingredients list and the, the stuff that I put into my stomach, but I don't. Your temple. Your temple, as it were. Uh, they also have a cha- uh, chocolate hazelnut flavor that I guess would be meant to... Like a Nutella kind of thing? Mimic the Nutella, exactly. All right, we want to hear from you if you tried this powdered peanut butter. I don't know how it is that we're just hearing about this in the last 10 minutes, but... Oh, we've got some people on the phone. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Jason, is that 204-780-6868? Hey, Jason, what do you have to say? Well, I I honestly grew up on the powdered milk. I remember having to mix it as a kid. And, I mean, I you know what? I didn't know any... Anytime I went over to someone's house, it was like drinking whipping cream when I got served 2%, right? So... True. It was... uh, I grew up like that, but they they have uh, a powdered peanut butter uh, called PB2. And actually, a lot of bodybuilders and, and fitness nuts use it. It's a great way to get the protein in there without getting the added oils or anything else in there. Hey, so it's been around for a while. Yeah, Fountain of information you are, Jason. Thank you, my friend. I yeah, appreciate it, Jason. Uh, that, that's great information. I really need to try this stuff. Chris is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Chris, what do you have to say? Um, have you ever tried Milo? No, what is that? It's a malted chocolate powder mix. It's like a hundred times better than the powder quick stuff you're talking about. I'm oh. writing it down right now. <laughs> Is it? How does it compare to just regular chocolate milk? A hundred. I don't know. It's malty. <laughs> it's really, really good. Okay, right, Milo. Okay. Thanks, man. We'll have to look, check that out. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm. Sounds like we're. Sounds like Greg's going to the uh, grocery store on the way home. <laughs> and check this stuff out. It is three fourteen on six eighty CGOB. We still have prizes to give away. We'll do that at some point this hour. And traffic and weather together is up next. It's actually eleven degrees now. Not bad. Not too bad. I think I might have to try out my new barbecue tonight. Oh yes, that's right. You got a new barbecue. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so you need to Phil you, you and Evan to... and the guys at Lux Barbecue mm. came and they set it up in my house while I was hard at work today. Jackie sent me a picture. It looks mighty nice. 
Nice Weber. Oh, and then the and Jackie approves. Uh, Jackie approved. Thumbs up. She can't believe how large it is. There's actually a bit of a funny story attached to that. Uh, no, no, you don't want to. No. Okay, he's shaking his head. No, forget it. Um. <laughs> there are lots of stories. Some of them are for public consumption. Uh, this one I'm going to veto, Brett McGarry. Okay, no, that's good. Uh, that's why I sort of leaned into it a little <laughs> bit, and now I'm going to lean back. Uh, before we go any further, we have stuff to give away. Thursday, April 6th at Nashville's. Or Knockville's, as it says on our prize sheet. It does not. It says knock like uh, N-A-C-H. Nashville's at Canadins Transcona on Regent Avenue West. Age of Electric. Today's... No. Today's question. It's a complicated one, Greg. <laughs> this is a real brain teaser. Oh, boy. What song are we playing right now? That's a question. You are really stretching it today. Well, it's kind of, it's not one of their bigger hits. That's so right. it would take a, an Age of Electric fan, or at least someone who knows something about Age of Electric, to recognize the song that's playing right now. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. 204-780-6868. The name of the song is not... No. That's not the name of the song? No. no. Okay. I'm out. <laughs> While we are, I waiting. guess I was out anyway. <laughs> While we are waiting for a winner for that, so the you have to stop for groceries after work for Milo, which is that uh, right. Nestle malt powder. Mm-hmm. You need to get some peanut, some powdered peanut butter, which it looks like you can get at pretty much any major any grocery store. Really, we did a quick uh, Google search, and yeah, it seems as though everybody has it. Julie Buckingham uh, sent me a message saying people that put it in. Uh, smoothies, which was confirms one of our texters was saying, and they put it in baking as well. So I, I, I'll try it. I like the I like peanut butter. So thanks for letting us know about all this stuff. Um, Brent just sent us a text. This here. is good. This is really good. Share it. Always remember if sugar, glucose, etc., etc. There's several names for it. Are in the first five ingredients. Do not touch. That's the best advice anyone can have about food because I had referenced I don't really pay attention to the ingredient list. So if you see sugar or glucose in the first five, then don't bother. Because, of course, as I understand it, the regulations dictate that they have to list an order of most prevalence within that item, Mm -hmm. right? So if sugar is the first thing, that means it has sugar more than any other ingredient that they may list. It's the most amount of the ingredient to the least, and that's how they list it. It's not alphabetical. It's not least complicated or most complicated to say. It's the most amount in that particular product to the least. Is that the way you understand it? Sure. Does that work for you? It works for me. Sounds about right. It sounds like we're getting all (laughs) sorts of advice and interaction with you out there. So uh, if Macklin got it wrong, which is... Quite, if not highly possible, 780-6868. We have a winner for the Age of Electric giveaway. Donald Roy correctly answered the question, <laughs> what song are we playing right now? And the answer was, I don't mind. It's from the 1997 album, Make a Pest a Pet. 
which also has the lead single, Remote Control, which is probably their most recognizable song, I would suggest. So Donald Roy is going to see Age of Electric Thursday, April 6th at Nashville's at Canadens. Transcona, we have one more set of tickets to give away tomorrow, and we will likely do that once again after 3 o'clock on Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. Traffic, weather, sports, all coming up next. It's always the exact same time at this time of day. 338. <laughs> yeah, it's 338 every day at 338. Isn't that amazing how that works? Not really. <laughs> you're Brett. I'm Greg. Thanks for tuning in. Are you into UFOs? I know you're into all sorts of movies. Science fiction maybe might be on those list of things oh, yeah. that you like as subject matter sci-fi. for movies. Yeah, I love sci-fi. I love alien invasion movies or anything about aliens. Uh, not necessarily invasion. Just It's a fascinating Fascinating topic to me. War of the Worlds. Did you dig that? Yep, you betcha. I read the book. Uh, I have my dad actually had the uh, the broadcast on vinyl. So I think I had it somewhere on vinyl as well. Chris Rutkowski joins us now. He's a science writer and UFO guy, ufologist. He or he, UFO guy is what he told me, right, Chris? <laughs> UFO guy is fine. Yes. <laughs> But I'm reading it. UFOlogy. That's a that's a thing, Chris. It's a it's a thing. Yeah, the study of all things UFO-ish. Well, love it. Thanks for uh, taking some time. Uh, this is an exciting time of the year for ufologists. The UFOs haven't gone away, says the headline. Number of UFO reports still high. Well, well, that's good. That's keeping you in business, my friend. It is. It is. You know, every day I, I get UFO reports. There's three reported a day in Canada. So there's, it's uh, you know, there's, things are happening. Things are looking up. So it's the 2016 Canadian... (laughs) I got that. (laughs) Took me a while, but I got it. Good pun, Chris. Uh, The Canadian UFO survey released, and how many reports were filed in Canada in 2016? Uh, There were more than 1,100 UFO reports in Canada last year, and it's... And, you know, and it's not a record, but it, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's staying up there, fifth year in a row that uh, it's been over a thousand cases. And, you know, it, um, we're having more UFO reports now, far more than, than let's say, 10 years ago. Uh, so the, the cases still haven't gone away, even though you don't hear about them as much. We still do get quite a few cases. If I see a UFO, who do I call to report that? Well, you can certainly tell us, <laughs> tell me or, or one of my associates. Um, there's a, a number of web pages you can go to. Uh, people still report things to Transport Canada, to uh, the RCMP. Uh, we still get reports uh, coming through uh, 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 the Canadian Forces. So there's a lot of different places that people can report things. And it's a jo- our, our biggest job is trying to find all those reports and funnel them into one sensible location. Chris, who's suggesting that UFOs are a quote, unquote, passing fad? Uh, a lot of skeptics uh, and debunkers. And, and it, of course, you have to define skeptic and debunker. I mean, I, I tend to be considered a skeptic because I don't necessarily believe that the aliens are definitely here and, you know, landing in Transcona every, every other Wednesday. But what I do say is that there's a lot of cases out there that, that deserve some scientific attention. I mean, we had a case last year um, uh, in November of a uh, uh, Port Airlines flight from Ottawa to Toronto. And in mid-flight, uh, it had to take evasive maneuvers because an object was right in front of it and, and they had to dive. And actually, uh, some of the uh, people on board had to be uh, treated in uh, hospital 
when it landed in Toronto because of the evasive maneuvers. And Transport Canada says, you know, we don't know what it was, but uh, we're not going to bother investigating because it's one of those pesky little UFO things. (laughs) Okay. Well, how do we do here in Canada compared to other places in the world? Are we highly active? Are we reporting these things more than different parts of the world and and the United States as well? Because I have a question, a theory that I've had for a long time that I want to ask you about, but I want you to answer the the first part first. Well, we do pretty good, and it's tough to uh, compare ourselves with other countries because um, there really aren't uh, very many countries that have organized collections of UFO information like this. Um, there's a few places. Uh, it turns out that uh, uh, Norway and Sweden and Italy and uh, even France have some good collection agencies. Uh, and in the United States, there's no one place where people can report things and, and they analyze the data. So it's really tough to tell. But from some of the larger organizations, um, like there's one called the uh, National UFO Reporting Center, uh, to them it looks like the number of cases is going up as well. But we seem to be doing a, a little bit better than we should. I mean, 1,100 uh, cases in Canada in one year. Um, and over the past 28 years, uh, we have more than 18,000 UFO reports. And uh, the United States had a, a project called Project Blue Book that some people may have heard of. And uh, they only had uh, something like uh, uh, ten or 12,000 UFO reports in that over a period of about uh, uh, 15 to 20 years. So we're doing way better than that, and that's just one country. So this is what has me baffled, Chris, because it was, in fact, the United States Air Force that collected and, and ran Project Blue Book. And if I would have a theory on why so many people would see unidentified, what they would consider unidentifiable flying objects, it would be because of things like the stealth bomber and and some of these crazy flying machines that the United States Air Force itself has created over the years, some that we've seen and some that have never been unveiled to the public. Absolutely. And certainly a lot of the cases uh, I would imagine are secret military things. I mean, there's Lots of UFO reports coming out of Nevada, you know, from the fabled Area 51, and where people will will see things moving around, and and uh, uh, some of the Sedona uh, area, you know, people will see UFO uh, UFOs flying around there, and I suspect those are military uh, flights of some sort that are classified. So, but it's when you get the cases like the one here in uh, in Canada, where you have an airline. Uh, It's your airline pilots and the crew have this thing that they have to dive under because it's flying uh, towards them. Um, That's probably not an American secret weapon. It could be something else, but it's certainly not an American secret flying machine. Chris Rutkowski, I think we're going to have to leave it here. Where can people go if they want to see the 2016 Canadian UFO survey? It's online at survey.canadianuforeport.com. That's survey.canadianuforeport, all one word, dot com. Chris Rutkowski, thank you so much. Chris is a science writer and a UFO guy, and we love talking to him about this stuff. And again, if you want to, if you didn't catch that link, just shoot me an email, brett at cjob.com, and I will direct you to the survey. Mackling and McGarry, traffic and weather together. Up next. You didn't have a chance in that game against me. Look at that. Did you guys just play tic-tac-toe or something? No, I don't know what you mean, what you call that. That one with the dots and you connect the lines and you make the box. Whatever it is, I'll defeat. I shall defeat Julie. So you make the dots, then you have to draw lines. And whoever makes the boxes, 
Have you never right. played that game? Maybe. It's ringing a bell. I did, pass it over here. I want to see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You used to do the big was, dots or whatever. It, SOS or something used to call it? I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Right? I don't know. Greg start, well, was doodling and I just Richard, continued. Hopefully you'll graduate to checkers at some point. Richard. Yes, sir. I know you typically mm. bring us news. I've got news for you. All right. Should your qualifier for the U2 getaway... Call in at 510. Yes. And I know you're very diligent with the 510. Yes, we We're are. a little more loosey-goosey with we the 210-ish. Yeah. Oh, we call it ish, too. So that's mm-hmm. good. Um, should your qualifier make that phone call today, you will tie Mackling and McGarry for the most number of qualifiers in this building. <laughs> if your qualifier does not call, that would mean you'll finish in second place. <laughs> And you know what they say about second place, right? We're awesome because we let no, the losers you do, win. No, you do not win silver. You lose gold. So just remember that. <laughs> I hadn't realized it was a competition. Oh, yeah, it we is. We made it very clear from the get-go it was oh. a competition. Oh, yeah. Oh. It's been clear. on. I've been keeping uh, track with Jeff Afa. <laughs> And, uh, I had no idea. Yeah. Okay. The things are going we on behind your back. All right. Yep. So why don't we just... Sometimes it goes on in front of his front and he doesn't even yeah. realize it. Well, he's a hard worker. So. <laughs> well, what okay. did you call Jeff Forte? Jeff Fafa. What is that? Because he's got three Fs, Jeff Forte, right? Yeah. Jeff Fafa. J-E-F-F-F. There's stuff that she does on the show. 747. Have no clue. No clue. Okay, what... Is the stuff that you're on the same page about today? How's that? Can we start there? Uh, well, uh, the the big news. There's two big news stories of the day. One is uh, the horrific story out of Winnipeg Police today, and the search for a six year old. Uh, we'll have full details coming up on the four news. And Sydney Arneson from the Canadian Centre for Child Protection will join us at four o seven. And of course, the breaking story and. You know, it's a rite of spring here as far as the ice flows are concerned, but there's some anxious moments to the north of the city of Winnipeg. Uh, we've got it covered through Global News. Brittany Greenslate up in Winnipeg Beach today. Our colleague Christian Amell up in uh, Selkirk. There is a news conference going on uh, right now as far as the provincial response is concerned. And with the casinos at Winnipeg Air 680 Chopper, we'll have it all covered for you this afternoon. Some spectacular pictures, uh, video and still up on our website and Mm -hmm. at our Twitter from the Chopper. And really, Christian was watching the fate and the flow of the river change before his eyes when we spoke to him today. And I know you were speaking with him earlier and we'll have him on the program. And we should um, maybe talk a little bit about recipes for our four 17 guest as well, right? Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about food and this group of university students and the unique place that they found food and decided to distribute it. So it's interesting. I'm not sure that any one of us would want food from there, but they went out and sourced it. Okay, 420 I'm familiar with, 417... Oh, that's the time of day today that you'll be getting the guests. Right. A little oh, different from, okay. you know, yes. we do the thing at 510, <laughs> you guys do it 210-ish. Yeah. yeah. We're a little bit more, you know. 17. Yeah. It's like, what kind of movement is does, this? How, how does, do I get in on that? By the way, how do, how do you feel about this, McGarry? Because McGarry and I are, are kind of similar in that we're type A personalities, and we are pretty well slaves to the clock. We like to get in and out on time. And we like to get everything done that way. You, pardon me? There you go. I can. I, <laughs> there you go. Glute, there you you're, go. You're, you're, well, okay. Maybe you, you've gotten better now, but I know that you don't like the clock. 
You like Sometimes. <laughs> you like to ignore the clock. Sometimes I do ignore the clock. There is yeah. some clock ignoring and some yeah, there, shifting, yeah, shifting okay. by Jeff Afa yeah. over there. Okay, yes. yeah, you're, yeah. yeah, you voted me. Are you rewriting history? Well, I was trying to, and McGarry McGarry called me on my. uh, Yeah, McGarry called me out on that. Yeah, Yeah, I was getting pretty stinky in here. But but to answer your question, when the the clock is ticking down and we've gone overtime, when Jeff sees me staring at the clock, I can see you sweat. Yeah, it's it. I I don't like it. So look at this part of my neck right here. It's super red here. One day we have to tell the story about I how I almost ruined Brett McGarry's uh, broadcasting career here. Like I owe you such a no, you such owe me a nothing. debt of gratitude. You owe me nothing. All right. I owe, <laughs> you, a, like you, I owe you a beer at some point. <laughs> oh, a beer. You'll take that. I'll take beer. Well, all right. Because well, uh, we're a team now. I'll also have a beer. <laughs> Goodbye. You're a team when it's convenient. Oh, Julie Buckingham with a parting shot. Oh, my goodness. Richard Cloutier hosting the news from 4 until 7 Bye on guys. 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling, thank you very much, sir. Another Pleasure, fine. pleasure to serve shoulder to shoulder with you, my comrade. <laughs> Jeff Forte oh. and Master Control. Thank you, sir. The news once again. Richard Cloutier, Julie Buckingham coming up next.